Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I'm so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with the Barnes Foundation curator, Cindy Kang, on the great impressionist, Bert Morisot. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week their founder Rosh Matani will be giving us an insight into Alighieri and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello Great Women Artist listeners, it's Rosh from Alighieri Jewelry. I wanted to let you know before word gets out tomorrow that Alighieri will be opening up the doors of its pop-up Alighieri Old Town, an old-school Italian piazza in the heart of central London from the 5th to the 9th of May. We'll have lots to show you, from a new bridal store to a nail bar and a chain bar. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter to, to be the first to book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the brilliant curator and impressionist expert, Cindy Kang. Currently an associate curator at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, where she has curated numerous exhibitions, including Marie Cotoli, The Modern Thread from Miro to Man Ray, and Renoir, Father and Son, Painting and Camera. Cindy's research and publications focus on the relationship between painting and the decorative arts in the late 19th and early 20th century France. An acclaimed curator, previous curatorial positions have included at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Frick Collection, both in New York, the Bard Graduate Centre, and the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Missouri. Cindy has also been a scholar in residence at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles and received her PhD from the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. But the reason why we are speaking with Cindy today is because she also served as managing curator for the spectacular Barnes Foundation presentation of Bert Morisot, Woman Impressionist, a sensational exhibition that was on view from 2018 to 19 which charted the course of the pioneering French Impressionist's career. This exhibition successfully cemented her as one of the greats of the late 19th century. The New Yorker called her the most interesting artist of her generation by taking major themes in her work and life and proving that she was capable of so much. Cindy Kang, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very flattered to be here. 
No, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honour. I was sadly never able to make what looked like a stunning exhibition last year. However, I have bought the catalogue, which has just made me so excited about finding out more about Bert's life. I mean, when we think of the Impressionists, so much of the time, names such as Monet, Degas, Renoir come up. But Morisot herself was a member of the group, having exhibited in their first exhibition in 1874, and every exhibition but one after that, and was also widely praised by critics. So I just want to start off by asking you, when and how did you first come across Morisot and her work? I actually came across her work as one of the giants of Impressionism in college, because I went to a women's college. Really? I had a super feminist education. Wow. And so when I learned about Morizo, it was in the company of Monet, Renoir, Degas, you know, just as groundbreaking and important as they were. So it came to me as a surprise later yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that she was actually not considered that by the wider world. <laughs> I love this. So and it was it still was a surprise when we were starting to promote the show in Philadelphia. Our marketing team did a sort of survey of how many people had heard of Morizo. And the numbers were so low. And I was still shocked, even though people had told me that, yeah, she's not well known. But in the feminist canon, I guess, which is how I was brought up in art history, she was always a giant. So I was really thrilled to be able to work on this project. It was quite a dream come true. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you have this because she is a giant and she should be that for everyone. I mean, was there a particular work when you first studied her that spoke to you and stood out for you? Oh, gosh. there. Yeah. (laughs) It's an early work of hers and it was in the exhibition. It is a painting called The Artist's Sister at a Window. Yes. I love that work and I love it even more now, now that I'm older, now that I'm a mother, actually. But it shows Berthe Morisot's sister, Edma. Uh, they're in this town, Lorient, and she's sitting by a window. The window's open. She's holding a fan in her lap, and she's looking not out the window, but at this fan in her lap with a really ambivalent expression. Yeah. Maybe melancholy, maybe bored, but definitely not overjoyed. And the other detail here is that she is very likely pregnant with her first child. And this painting was executed shortly after she got married. And shortly after she got married, Edma, who was a painter herself, she was painting with her sister, gave up her artistic ambitions. And so you feel all of this backstory in this painting. It's so subtle, but it's there. And these are the same issues that we feel today, you know, the conflict between pursuing your career and your family and how do you balance them and what are the societal expectations and pressures on you. So it was just fascinating that this painting from 19th century Paris, which really has nothing to do with my life, it should connect with me so much. Yeah, I mean, what I love about this work as well, and this comes up a lot in Morisot's work, is this idea of thresholds as well, you know, being between the inside and the outside. I mean, do you think there was some kind of significance in this picture in particular that almost feels like she's trapped in this interior? Yeah, and I think what's really the key is that she's not looking outside, right? She's not looking out and yearning to be out. She's looking inward. There are these French doors. They're just flung wide open, but she's just looking at this object in her lap. And what I also love about this object in her lap, which is a a fan, is that the way it's painted with these daubs of colorful patches, 
the fan in her lap is made to look like a palette. And to me, it is so symbolic. It's you can see that she's giving up painting to take on, you know, this quote unquote decorative role of being wife and mother. So I, I think there's a lot of psychological resonance in this picture. But one thing that does strike me when I am in front of Morizos is that they're very small scale. Yeah, yeah. And very intimate. They draw you in. And so you feel like even though there's these small intimate works, they create this entire world that's palpable. You know, you can feel, you can enter. And it's it's really because of how subtle the expressions are on the figures in her paintings that allow you to enter into their mental states. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first painting I ever witnessed of hers was Young Girl on the Grass, the Red Bodice at the Painting of Modern Garden from Monet to Matisse at the Royal Academy mm. here in London, which, where she was just one of two artists in this huge show. Uh, but witnessing Morisot is incredible. I mean, this work was slightly later in 1885, but she breaks up the canvas with these lines and shards of light and colour and movement. I mean, her later work particularly feels so alive and the light is almost moving in it. Oh my gosh, yes. There is an amazing evolution that happens in her painting technique in the 1880s where the brushwork becomes so much looser, so much freer. And it's radical, actually, how far she pushes the Impressionist painting technique. I think she pushes it farther than most of her colleagues. Yeah. She's experimenting with form and formlessness, even you can say, because um, I just find it thrilling. There was a painting that we had in the exhibition from the Art Institute of Chicago. There was a woman at her toilette. And I just find that painting so breathtaking and so thrilling every time, because it's like you're just watching how this swirl of rapid brushwork seems to teeter on the edge of falling apart into chaos, but it doesn't. Instead, it just coalesces and conjures this incredibly beautiful, delicate image of this woman, you know, doing her toilette in her bedroom. Yeah. What do you think makes Bert such a groundbreaking painter? I think it is this technique and this experimentation with technique, which again, is is more than even her contemporaries. I think also what makes her a really radical and modern painter is that the subject matter she treated was contemporary women's lives and she treated it in an avant-garde manner. So she was taking this subject matter that was not that well respected or people did not think of that kind of subject matter as the subject of modern painting. And she took it and made it the center of this radical new approach to painting. Totally. I mean, I love to get into this in a moment, but she was born into an upper middle class family. She was actually born in 1841 in Bourges to an affluent family. I mean, can you tell us a bit about her childhood? Who were her family and were they artistic? So her father, he was um, in different civil servant posts in France until they finally moved to Paris in 1860. And so she had an upper middle class upbringing. She learned piano. Her childhood was, I guess, very typical of her class. And where it starts to veer off the typical is when she turned 16 and her mother decided that she wanted her two daughters to give their father a drawing for his birthday. So she started to, you know, send them to drawing lessons. And it was this experience taking drawing lessons that both of them showed an enormous amount of talent and pretty much launched into art. 
they went through several teachers because it was very apparent and very clear from the beginning that they were at a very high level and needed a certain level of teacher. And one of their teachers actually famously told their mother something like that. This is a catastrophe. (laughs) In what way? You know, you have such talented daughters. If they go into art, they will become artists, which is a catastrophe. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Controversial. But they pursued it. And and both of the sisters eventually went to study with Camille Corot, who is very, you know, well known as a landscape painter. And they started sketching outdoors. And they were just so enamored with this new medium, with this new idea, with this new activity. It was not typical for these upper middle class girls to dream of becoming professional artists, but they did. And that's what they pursued. Yeah. And it's interesting that they were privately tutored. I mean, how common was it for girls to be granted artistic education at this time? And did they have to have private education because actually women were still banned from the academies? Yeah, of course. And it was typical for upper middle class women to take drawing lessons and to be amateur artists, just like they took piano lessons. You know, this was an activity that well brought up young women should do. It's just that they were never expected to take it beyond that and to do it professionally. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's interesting is how Morizo takes this archetype of the amateur female artist and makes it into an avant-garde practice, yeah. um, which is really unique to her. And so then in 1864, she exhibits for the first time at the Salon, mm-hmm. which is only 23. I mean, with the acceptance of two landscape paintings, what did this mean for her to be accepted into the Salon at this point, so young? It was huge. And again, it, it shows how talented she was and how fiercely independent she was. What an independent mind and spirit she had that she already was staking her claim on this profession. She was going to be an artist. She was going to be officially recognized. She was going to exhibit at the Salon, along with her sister. You know, they were both on this path together. And and I think that's important, that sisterly relationship in the beginning, because they really were mutual support for each other. They were each other's moral support, and they pushed each other to pursue this dream. Wow. And so can you kind of tell us a bit about what the Salon was like and what it represented in 1860s Paris at the time? So the Salon was the official art exhibition in the city. And if you were an aspiring artist, if you really wanted to stake your claim on an artistic career, you had to be accepted at the Salon. And this was a time, of course, when artists who were working outside of a kind of academic tradition and academic style started to challenge this convention of the Salon and of having to exhibit at the Salon. And so Morizot came along quite at an opportune time. You know, it was already pretty radical for, you know, women of her background to be trying to pursue a career as a professional artist and trying to exhibit at the Salon. But then when she starts to meet these avant-garde artists and starts to associate with them and then gets invited to join a radical artist cooperative that was planning to exhibit outside the Salon, that was quite a risky move. And I think it's incredible that she decided to go for it against the advice of many people. There were more kind of official artists who were her mentors who said, this is a really bad idea. You're just going to destroy your career if you go with these kind of radical bohemian guys. 
But she knew they were onto something and she knew they were trying to push art in a new direction and she wanted to be part of it. So I feel like when we think about the Impressionists, they are so canonical now that you forget what a kind of risky ragtag venture it was. And to have Morizot agreeing to be part of the first Impressionist exhibition is still astounding. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's incredible. But just to sort of backtrack slightly, at the end of the 1860s, she meets Manet. I mean, was this yeah. a really sort of integral part of both of their careers? They were equally influential in each other. I mean, tell us about this relationship. Yeah. So she meets Manet through copying at the Louvre. And that is a huge, important moment. I'm really glad that you open this question with saying that, you know, it was an important moment in both of their careers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because for a, a long time, Morizot was understood as really under the influence of Manet, and that was the end of it. But as, as you said, it was actually a formative moment for both of them, because they formed an incredibly fertile kind of artistic relationship, where they were constantly in dialogue and looking at each other's works, and, you know, feeding off of each other. Um, and you can see that throughout both of their artistic productions. And then, of course, meeting Manet was important not just for her artistic career, but also for her personal life, because she ends up marrying Manet's brother. And he also was an artist. But I think what's fascinating about that relationship is that once she gets married to Eugène, he gives up his career in a sense. He stays at the amateur artistic level and he supports her career. And she keeps her maiden name as well. Yeah, because she's already exhibited wow. at the salon yeah. under her maiden name, Morizo. So she just wants to keep exhibiting under her maiden name, even though socially she's known as Madame Manet. But she definitely doesn't want to be subsumed under the Manet name. You know, she knows that, you know, Edouard Manet is already yeah. quite notorious. So she wants to forge her own identity and not be attached to him in that way. But, you know, they it is true that in the beginning, he was an artistic mentor to her. And the part that people love to focus on is that he painted so many portraits of her, maybe like yeah. 10 portraits of her that are just gorgeous yeah. and penetrating um, yeah. and really speak to the fact that they had a very close relationship because you, you can see that through their portraits how comfortable they were with each other totally and so the work that she's making at this point and the kind of the cusp of the impressionists I guess just before they have that exhibition are these beautiful outdoor works and like the work that you mentioned in the introduction you know young woman at the window in 1869 mm -hmm. I mean one of the works that I'm particularly taken with at this time is also reading from 1873 which I think mm -hmm. you know not just shows this incredibly advanced brushwork but also shows a kind of a woman reading outside, again, like sort of painting the modern woman. I mean, what was she kind of exploring as her subject matter at this point? You know, I don't think she was that conscious of it at that point yet, because I think what she was focused on was the idea of painting outdoors, the yeah. challenge of painting outdoors, and the challenge of painting figures outdoors. How yes. do you integrate the figure into an outdoor space? How do you capture light? You know, in her very early works, when she's painting with her sister and exhibiting at the Salon, they are painting in that kind of old master manner with a dark palette. And when she starts painting with the artist who will become the Impressionist, her palette completely lightens. Yeah. 
And this completely changes how you're thinking about color and light. And she is also painting the subjects that she has access to. Yes. So in the beginning, I think it's, you know, she's painting her sisters. She's painting her sister's children. So she is absolutely coming out of that tradition and that practice and and pushing it to a new technical level, you know, a new avant-garde expression. So I think in the beginning, I don't see it as quite as conscious as, you know, maybe a little bit later in the 1870s, where you, you see that she really starts to develop this figural type of the modern woman, which then yeah. becomes so closely associated with her and her work and her career. Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting. You mentioned about, you know, what she had access to, because am I right in thinking I've read where she's recalled in a diary where she's actually traveling to Nice in the 1870s and she's actually being harassed because she's painting outside because I mean, but that's such an interesting thing. You know, when you look at female and male depictions of that time, it's just what she had access to. It's not like she could go and paint the cafes. It's, you know, the fact that she was literally being harassed yeah. from painting outside, meaning that she would have to take a boat out and into the sea to be able to paint from a distance on her own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she had to be chaperoned anytime she yeah. was painting outdoors, you know? <laughs> she was a curiosity. I mean, yeah, she writes in her letters, she recounts this episode where she's like trying to go out in the field and paint. And, you know, this huge group of children just come flocking around her because she's such a curiosity. They're like, what? What is she doing? What is this woman doing? So, wow. Yeah, there, there are these practical concerns, which is also why she's painting a lot indoors. She's painting interiors, she's painting domestic interiors. And then she is focused so much on, as we said before, the threshold space, yep. windows, because that was a way of yes. uh, fusing indoor and outdoor, yeah. where she could still paint the outdoors, but be indoors and not be harassed. Yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting because that's how, I mean, you know, when you, when you think of the kind of female Renaissance artists as well, they love to paint thresholds. And I, I, I get it now. It's because they're trying to prove that they can paint the outdoors as well as the indoors. <laughs> but so like you just mentioned, in 1874, the first Impressionist exhibition happens. And I mean, first of all, I'd love to ask you, what really drew her to the Impressionists? Well, she was friends with Manet. Manet was friends with the Impressionists. So they were part of a wider social network. I mean, she clearly was someone who wanted to take risks. She's ambitious. Yeah, she was ambitious. And she knew where she wanted to go artistically, that she didn't want to stay in this academic salon painting. She wanted to be pushing art in a new direction. And these were artists that were of a similar mind and also were working towards these ambitions and these goals. So it, it was Degas who first invited her to exhibit with them. They were kind of in the same social networks. There was a comfort and a familiarity there that I think allowed her to think, I'm going to try this. Yeah, absolutely. And what was it that she exhibited at this first exhibition? So she exhibited one of her most iconic and famous paintings now, which is called The Cradle. Yeah. Which is also... I love that work. I love, yeah, I love that work too. It was so thrilling to have that in the exhibition and to be able to hang that. That came from the Musée d'Orsay. So the cradle establishes her as a major painter, partly because it is a scene of motherhood, of maternity, and it's kind of what people were expecting her to exhibit. But even so... 
when I look at the painting, I see so much more than what the critical reception was at the time. It's interesting because when you read the critical reception, they talk about, oh, it's such a sweet painting of motherhood. And when I look at it, I am so drawn to it precisely because it is completely ambivalent again. Yeah. She's painting her sister, Edma, looking at her sleeping daughter, her new baby girl, Blanche. It's her second daughter. And the expression on Edma's face is really hard to read. And I feel like I would walk into the exhibition and one day it would seem like she was just looking adoringly at her baby daughter. And the next day I would walk in and it seemed like, no, it was a very melancholic expression tinged with a lot of ambivalence. You know, it was not a very straightforward, clear cut, saccharine kind of portrait of motherhood. There was definitely a lot of lived experience being expressed of psychological nuance, again, of what it is to be a woman living at that time. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. You mentioned earlier that Edna also gave up her career in 1869 when she married her husband. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I'm reading into this, but you know, you could read it as contemplating the fact that she's in this painting, the fact that she gave up this career, you know, yeah. she could have been the one behind the canvas. And and also the composition of this work is so interesting because you have these kind of two diagonal lines and this kind of black background that actually really separate Edna from her baby. And the fact that she's got this net over this translucent net, there is yeah. this barrier that you don't see in... You know, when you look at someone like Mary Cassatt, always the mother and child are kind of swept up together. This is also pre-Morisot having birth, having a child herself. Yeah. And the way that Edma is also dressed is so contemporary and it's as though she's about to go out. And I don't know, there's so much going on. It's so charged. There's so much kind of modern life within this very traditional mother and child setup. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Cassatt. Cassatt never had a child and painted motherhood over and over and over again and was quite associated with that theme but you know Cassatt was painting motherhood with a capital M right she was painting kind of like doing the modern Madonna so she was painting an archetype and modernizing that archetype whereas Morizot was painting contemporary life and really trying to express contemporary women's lived experience I also just love that transparent veil. It is so gorgeous. And critics at the time definitely pointed it out as showing how incredible Morizot's technique was to be able to paint that white transparent veil over the cradle. And it's also funny because they also said that the mother was so badly dressed. <laughs> really? I mean, yeah, I love I, her outfit now, but it's 2020. So right, maybe exactly. fashion's changed. <laughs> I love her hair. I literally love the way she looks. She was like she's got a choker on or something. It's yeah. gorgeous. But I think in this painting, you see Morizo starting to claim white. This may sound weird, but you know, the way we think about Manet and how amazingly he handled black paint and, and yeah. Manet's blacks are so rich and varied and expressive. I would say the same about Morizo's whites. Um, starting with the cradle, you see the way she's able to handle white paint and the variety of it and the textures and you see it throughout her work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how was she received at the exhibition? So she has had an interesting critical reception. Um, as you would imagine, she was always received as like, oh, she's such a feminine artist. And there were certain words that were always associated with her, like charming, like delicate, and her painting was compared to flower petals and oh my god no (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) She was incredibly skilled and planned the work and worked extremely hard on it. And it was extremely thought out and it was made to look spontaneous, of course, just like her compatriots, right? They were painting work that looked spontaneous. Yeah. So she was very well received in many cases, though in other cases criticized along with all the other impressionists for doing, you know, terrible, sketchy work. <laughs> I love the Lifagaro critic, Albert Wolf, who noted that the impressionists consisted of five or six lunatics, of which one is a woman whose yeah. feminine grace is maintained amid the outpourings of a delirious mind. I mean, in 1974, were they completely panned by the press? They were panned. They were a scandal. They were criticized. You know, the term impressionist was not meant to be a compliment, but they kept going and they kept exhibiting and they did win the mainstream over at some point. And it's actually amazing also in thinking about Morizo that she was one of three impressionists who were collected by the French government during her lifetime. It was her, Renoir and Sisley. And this was, yeah, this was incredible as a living artist and as a living women artist. Yeah. So there were eight exhibitions of the Impressionists. And as they go on in 1877, she was described by one of the critics as being, you know, one real Impressionist in this group. So it's interesting, you know, as they went on, they gained maybe more popularity. But I want to talk about her work in the 1870s, because Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned it earlier, but exploring this toilette and the kind of modern woman in your catalogue in the Barnes Foundation, you include this completely brilliant photograph of her. I mean, she is the kind of epitome of French 1870s chic. I mean, she's in this black gown, which yeah. is kind of elbow high gloves, this beautiful <laughs> hat, and all this fantastic velvet chair. I mean, she clearly, you know, was the epitome of the Parisian woman. And do you think that's what she really wanted to capture in her 1870s work? Yeah, I mean, I think that also did help her reception was that she was the epitome of the sophisticated upper middle class woman. She was beautiful. She was elegant. She was fashionable. I mean, unfortunately, other female artists were described as like trying to be too much like men or overly muscular or whatever it was. But Morizot fit the image of what a respectable woman artist should look like, which I think also helped her kind of slip through this radical work. I mean, she was doing really radical stuff. What, what I love about these 1870s works, when you mentioned earlier this toilette, and these two works, which is Woman at Her Toilette from 1875 and Reclining Woman in Grey, which I think is just one of the most fantastic works she's ever created. I mean, it almost just looks like we're just walking in on this woman's private space. And you can yeah. see her style is drastically changing at this point. If anything, some of the canvas almost seems bare. Yeah, this is something she started to experiment with more and more actually in the 1880s where she would leave parts of the canvas bare as part of the composition. And she started to exhibit these canvases that were, quote unquote, unfinished. They looked unfinished with this bare canvas all around them, but very deliberately bare because she was exploring, again, the limits of representation, the limits of painting. How loose can the brushwork be? How, what do you need to actually create an image? So the 1870s work is when she is moving towards these questions and starting to ask these questions. Also, yeah, starting to form this archetype of the modern woman, of the Parisienne, as we talk about in the exhibition. And the Parisienne at the time became 
this symbol of modern Paris, you know, just overall in popular culture. And Morizot very much helped to define this idea of the Parisienne, who she was, what she looked like, what kinds of activities she was doing. Um, yeah. But the, the fact that fashion was a major subject for modern art and was a major consideration and symbol of modern life. This is something that Morizot excelled at and, and helped to define. Yeah, I mean, that work, Woman at Her Toilette, which is, she, I think she's in front of two mirrors maybe, and it's just, she has this translucent dress. And the way that she captures the kind of feather-like brushstrokes really capture just, you really sense the texture of the material as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that is one of my most favorite paintings. And a lot of, I think that's the same with a lot of Morizot fans that would probably be one of their most favorite paintings. And it's incredibly clever. I don't want to say clever because that sounds glib, but it's incredibly intelligent in the way that she's using the mirror too. Because of course, in the mirror, you don't see the reflection of the woman. And yet she signs the painting at the bottom of the mirror. So she's very much creating a metaphor here of the mirror as a second canvas and thinking about women and women making themselves up, right? Getting dressed, the toilette, the makeup, the the flowers, the clothes, and creating a metaphor between that and, and painting and the artifice behind it all, that it is all a construction And this is actually a theme that was prevalent in Rococo painting and 18th century painting. So Morizot is kind of taking that and updating it for her own life and and exploring it from the perspective of a modern woman who is, you know, living through this idea of creating your persona and then creating your artistic persona. Yeah, and I think maybe this is just an observation, but when you compare her to her male counterparts, I guess, at the time, I mean, even the fact that we just see a, a, almost a quarter of the face of this woman, there feels like there's so much psychological intensity. She's really kind of connecting with the woman. She's showing her almost looking at herself. There's something really intimate about the way that she captures women for who they are, even though they're dressed in these very kind of elaborate dresses because they're upper middle class women. There's still this, you know, they're human and they're women and, and they want to dress up. And I don't know, they're not a spectacle for once. They're not an object. They're people. Exactly. They, they have this psychological intent. Exactly. There's always this psychological interiority that is so present yes. in Morizot's depictions of women. And it's like you are feeling what it is like to be in in this body, you know, in the flesh of the woman depicted. I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to <laughs> articulate something. But right, it, it's amazing in this painting the toilette, that you don't see this woman's face, really. I mean, it's completely, really blurred out. And yet you can feel her presence. Yes. You can feel her psychological presence. You, you know, yeah. it's incredible. You're like, how does she do that? And you can feel the texture of her flesh. You're seeing her from the back. But again, with this rapid kind of melting, chaotic brushwork, this breathtaking brushwork that is describing all of these textures, but also reminding you that this is paint and that this is Morizot reveling in the texture of paint, in the tactility of paint. Because there is something about her brushwork that both describes the form and then flattens it. You know, the way that she's painting, that's a bed in the back. That it completely just flattens the, the background. And yet then you have the mirror, which is creating that's a little bit tilted and then gives you a sense of depth. So I feel like 
you can see her dialoguing with a lot of tradition, with contemporary artists, with her friends. I mean, there is so much just going on in this very subtle, very tranquil, seemingly simple painting of this woman looking at herself in a mirror, you know, doing her hair. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think what's so beautiful about it is the fact that, you know, men wouldn't have access to this such intimate place as well. You really get that sense of this is a woman's private place with herself and, you know, making herself up. Yeah. And this you see also with the one nude that we had in the exhibition, which was a last minute loan that popped up. And when it popped up, I was like, yes, yes, we need to take it. (laughs) We need to have this nude. Because Morizo did not paint a lot of nudes. So yeah, in the beginning, she was painting her sisters. But as she progressed, she was employing professional models. So she paints a professional model in her own bathroom, in Morizo's bathroom in her house, which gives this painting a real sense of intimacy again. As you said, that this is, you know, this is a very familiar space. And you see this woman from the back, and she looks over her shoulder towards the viewer, towards Morizo. And you can really tell that, you know, you don't get this kind of gaze when a nude is looking back towards a male painter. This is kind of a gaze of comfort and intimacy and complicity that you get because this nude is looking back at Morizo painting her. It's such a different tenor, this nude, compared to the nudes of Renoir or Ingres. But it's really interesting to see one of these works and how much you can see that that it is a woman painting a woman. Yeah, totally. And so in the 1880s, the style, again, I mean, just develops so rapidly. And the Garden at Mercor, which is from 1884, I mean, you look at this brushwork and it almost feels like Joan Mitchell. I mean, yeah. it's, it's so abstract expressionist. The fact that she's using purple in the grass, I mean, that's almost kind of looking uh, towards the expressionists in the kind of early 1900s. This work particularly is just, it's, it's all about the brushstroke. Yeah. My friend uh, Jade Fadjatimi, who's a fantastic abstract painter, she was actually on the podcast a few months ago, she described this as a kind of oceanic use of paint. And I love mm. that you're kind of swept up in this sea of like purples, greens, yellows, even though yeah. it's like an outdoor scene. I mean, you take the sort of faces out of this painting and it just becomes an abstraction. Yeah. And Morizo did have a bit of a renaissance, perhaps you could say, in the mid 20th century when the abstract expressionist, when, oh, really? you know, Frankenthaler started to, to look at her work. I think it was because in 1950... Because Joan Mitchell also lived in Paris. So I wonder if yeah. she looked at her. Yeah. And I think it was with the publication of her letters in the mid 20th century that then people started to look at her again. And definitely the abstract expressionists were starting to talk about her and look at her again and see that, wow, look at this brushwork. This is incredible. And then she was doing this right in the 19th century. Yeah. So she she absolutely had a second life in that context. Yeah, absolutely. And so in 1885, I mean, she paints this incredible self-portrait. I mean, she. Oh yeah. What, what, what do you think? <laughs> Can you tell us about the self-portrait of eighteen eighty-five? I mean, what do you think this says about her portraying herself, immortalizing herself as a woman at work because she's in front of a canvas? Yeah, yeah. No, this is an incredible painting and really shows her at the height of her powers, at the height of her confidence. It's such a confident work because it's also, there's tons of bare canvas. So she shows herself basically bust length, looking out towards the viewer. And she's wearing this brown 
jacket. And she's got these embroidered kind of flower decoration on this jacket that one of her friends compared to a military decoration because this is the tenor of this portrait. She's so upright, right? She's so erect and she's so at attention and just looking right out at you, no apologies. And you can sense her confidence in herself as an artist, finally, right, in this portrait. When you read her letters, one way that I, I felt kind of an empathetic connection to her is that when you read her letters, she's always so down on herself. She's always really? like, oh, my work is terrible. What? And like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. And she's like filled with self-doubt and not confident about what she's producing. And she destroyed a lot of her early work. So it's amazing to see this self-portrait and to see how she just finishes it and paints as much as she thinks she needs to paint in order to express what she wants to express. Her face and her figure are described, but then the background is completely patchy. And then there's just bare canvas, you know, around the edges. And then this amazing detail, she's holding her palette and her brush, but her palette and her brush are described as this summary kind of vortex of brushwork. It's so cursory and so dynamic. And you can also see that her hair is graying a little bit. Yes. And she's not afraid to show that. Yeah, I thought that. You <laughs> never see that ever in painting. But I mean, it's interesting. You should talk about how she was down on herself because she was, you know, one of the only women working at this time. And there's this quote in her diary, which has said, you know, I don't think there has ever been a man who treated a woman as an equal. And that's all I would have asked yeah. for. I know I am worth as much as they are. I mean, that must have put self-doubt on her mind. The fact that she was singled out for being a woman and, and the fact that women were associated with lesser than men. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the fact that she's writing that in 1890, when she's already 50. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> That's also heartbreaking. And I mean, maybe a little has changed. I think younger women now are more confident and unapologetic, but it didn't feel that different or that strange to me when I was reading her letters to read, you know, that she's saying how stupid she was and all these things, because this is so typical of how women are socialized still. Uh, She had a lot of imposter syndrome. And this is, still the case today with women working in male-dominated fields. So in 1892, Eugene dies and her work, well, first of all, she has her only lifetime solo exhibition this summer, but she dies in 1895 uh, prematurely. But just before she dies, she creates these, like this work of Julie, who's her daughter in 1894, which almost looks, I mean, it's like, you don't even think it's her because it's so different. It looks like Edward Munch or something. Yeah. So again, she's shifting styles in the 1890s and exploring something new. Her brushwork becomes much more sinuous. Her palette becomes more acidic. And she already was so attuned to the psychological interiority of her subject. And so it it seems like in the 1890s, she's pushing that a little bit farther and just thinking about these new symbolist currents and painting as expressing interior mental states. Yeah, this painting of Julie that you're talking about is the painting that we ended the show with. It is incredible. 
I, I mean, I should say something about Julie. This was her only daughter. It was her only child. And once Julie was born, Julie became one of her favorite subjects. And she painted Julie from babyhood to up to when you know she died herself. So you get to see Julie grow up in her paintings. And you also get to see that the motif of the young woman, the adolescent girl, is so resonant and so important for Morizot that it is expressive also of this idea of thresholds. It's between childhood and womanhood. Yeah. And there is something very poignant and resonant about the way that she paints Julie as she grows up. And you can almost get a sense that Julie is like on the cusp of womanhood. And you get a sense that Morizot is always poised on a breakthrough in her art because she was always seeking something more, something new. And there was this wonderful quote that I included in the exhibition where she says, I'm reaching the end of my life and I'm still a mere beginner. Uh, which wow. I find, again, incredible because she's accomplished so much and she's pushed painting in such a new radical direction. And yet she still is finding that she is still a beginner. Oh, I love that. I mean, in 1895, she dies from pneumonia, age 54. And to think that what she would have thought of just the next 10 years in art, I mean, the kind of progressions that happened after that. I um, know. You know, she. I think the fact that she experimented and constantly reinvented herself each decade just yeah. showed that she was so ahead of her time, ahead of always looking, looking towards the future, the modern world, the modern woman. I mean, she's so innovative. And, and, and in 1896, Renoir, Monet, Degas and Julie Manet actually organised a retrospective of her work, yeah. uh, 400 works. I mean, tell us about this. I mean, how was she then remembered after this? Yeah, that was an incredible landmark posthumous exhibition, which is still the largest exhibition of her work ever. Yeah. <laughs> and the majority of those works remained in the family. So in the end, most of her production after that 1896 exhibition just disappeared from public view. And, you know, you had to know the family in order to see it, which some lucky people did. But you know, even though the family did give gifts to museums and there was some circulation of her work on the secondary market, it really contributed to Morizot's reputation declining and her kind of disappearing from history. I mean, I'd just love to ask, you know, what was then the, you know, you say that this exhibition in 1896 was the biggest exhibition she's ever had. I mean, the fact that, you know, in London, we've never had a Burke Morisot show. And what was the reaction to her work when you exhibited it? Oh my gosh, it was such a revelation. People were just bowled over and they were so in love. But no, it was an incredible reception. And I, I hope, I feel that it really established her again as the center of this time in art and in art history and that she was a founding member of this really radical and important art movement. Yeah, and what do you think Burt's taught you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I guess to continue to pursue your work, even if you are doubting yourself. I mean, because a part of her knew that she was quite good, right? She knew that she was good. She knew that she was talented. She knew that she was onto something. But she was always battling herself and her self doubt and her imposter syndrome. That is the same for me, <laughs> that's the same for a lot of women. And I think she just persevered. She just kept going, 
despite and in the face of all of her self-doubt. And I think that that is a lesson that we can learn from her and take away as women, you know, working today. Totally. Cindy, thank you so much for this just incredible insight into Bert Morisot. And as it says the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if Bert was alive or perhaps if you go back in time to the 19th century, what would you say to her? I would want to ask her where her painting was going. What was she thinking now? Because she died so suddenly in the space of a week. Oh my gosh. It was sudden. It was very sudden. It was just, you know, all of a sudden she was just gone and cut off and, and her work was just cut off. And, you know, the last room in our exhibition, you could see her moving towards something and it would be, it just was so tragic. And I would want to, to ask her and to see what, you know, where are you going next? You know, where are you thinking of going next? What are you doing? Where are you going to push your painting next? Perfect. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to the 62nd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Cindy Kang on Bert Morisot. I am just in awe at Morisot's radical work and career and urge you all to look it up. As always, I have linked through to everything, all the images in the show notes, including Cindy's fantastic exhibition. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Winnie Simon. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.